Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Code, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. This is Joshua Bourne, Managing Director, Strategic Initiatives at RCLCO Real Estate Consulting. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, we have a unique episode. We're going to get to hear from two guests, providing us two unique perspectives, representing both the public and private sector, and how getting to the same page leads us to a successful collaboration. Joining us is Mayor Shelley Brindle, the current mayor of Westfield, New Jersey, and the first female elected as mayor in town history. Additionally, we have Doug Adams, Senior Vice President of Streetworks Development, the real estate development division of Hudson's Bay Company Properties and Investments, where he leverages his real estate experience to create enduring mixed-use developments. Mayor Brindle, Doug, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Pleasure yeah, to be here. Great to be here. Excellent. We'll see how this goes with two people back and forth, but we want this to be a conversation. We're going to start with a bit of background on how each of you got to where you are today, but I wanted to give our audience some context as to why you two represent two of the best minds in real estate. And it's really due to the work you've been doing together on One Westfield Place, a public-private partnership, and its impact on the redevelopment of Westfield's historic downtown. So maybe to kick us off, Mayor Brindell, can you share a bit about the project and the town of Westfield? Give us a history of the project, please. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start off with a little bit of background about the history of Westfield. We are a suburb of New York City, a lot of commuters that live here, and one with deep history. We actually just celebrated our 300th anniversary in 2020. So it has a lot of historic sensibility, and you know we're on the train line. And so our downtown was created along the train line, like many of the suburban New York City communities. And just a little bit of background is that the vibrancy of our downtown is really a key reason why a lot of people move to Westfield because of the historic nature of it. And like many Main Street communities across the country, Westfield was suffering from a historic number of vacancies in the beginning in 2013 because of the transition to online shopping, which I think Main Street communities really hadn't figured out a strategy for how to adapt to it. So I come from the private sector and it was that challenge which was really prompted me to run for mayor. Great. And then can you just give us a little bit about One Westfield Place, the project itself, Doug? Maybe maybe you want to jump in and just share a bit about the project, the background, if you don't mind, so our audience knows what we're going to be discussing today. Sure. You know, Lord and Taylor was one of the original anchors of the successful downtown the mayor referred to. And after many, many decades, things changed and Lord and Taylor went out of business. So it was really an opportunity to create a new anchor to help sustain downtown for the next 50 years. It's a mixed use project that includes residential, retail, although on a much smaller basis, class A office, most importantly, new public realm and public spaces that really become a big asset for the town. And that's what we do at our core. It's a types of projects that we really focus on. So it was a perfect match between us and the town of Westfield. And just to jump in a little bit on what Doug said, because I think it's important for your listeners to understand the importance of the Lord and Taylor 
to our community. It's on seven acres, which is adjacent to a walkable downtown. And it was been as this iconic department store in our town since the early 60s. And beloved is an understatement when I say how people felt about it. So the project got going because when I was elected, Warden Taylor was still operational in early 2018, but you didn't have to be a genius to see the writing on the wall where that was going. And as a newly elected mayor, I was very concerned I was going to get the call one day. (laughs) Guess what? We're bringing in who knows, you know? And that's when I reached out to Richard Baker because I just wanted to make sure that whatever decisions were made about the Lord and Taylor future, that the town had a seat at the table to help with that determination. Yeah, and I know during our prep call, the word sentimental came up about the Lord and Taylor building. And so we'll come back to that. And, and the, the key fact that this is an adaptive reuse of that building. And I think we'll we'll get into that and we'll come back to the project shortly. But maybe before we jump into the project itself, I'd love to hear a bit more about both of your backgrounds and kind of where how you got to where you are today. Doug, could you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your role and your path to this project. Sure. As senior vice president, I'm responsible for all the developments ongoing under Streetworks. And one of the first and foremost is the Westfield project. I've been here for four years, but a developer for over 20. I'm slightly older than Arcielco. And once you said 1967, I think, but just real briefly, I worked a summer job in high school for a real estate developer in my hometown and fell in love with real estate. And then to get into it, I went through banking equity and mezzanine lending, and finally, real estate development. So I've been doing all different classes, all different parts of the business over the years, and it really all came to bear and all came into use on this project. It's great to hear. And Mayor, how about yourself? Can you tell us a bit about your background? I know there's a key piece there that's been really helpful in this project. Yeah, I have probably a more of a bit of an unusual journey to local politics, which uh, people always seem to be intrigued by. So I had a career at HBO for 28 years before I retired. My last job there, I was the executive vice president of domestic distribution and marketing, overseeing our four and a half billion dollar subscription, domestic subscription business. So but had been a longtime resident of Westfield but really quite candidly was not particularly engaged in the community because I was working in New York City, had a full-time job, three kids at home, the whole bit. And I decided to leave to to really look at, find a second chapter that I felt like had more of a social impact. Did not think that meant local politics remotely. So while I was contemplating what that next chapter was going to be, it was in 2016, which is when the vacancies were pretty rampant in our town. So I was always a bit of a transformational person at HBO. So I was asking a lot of questions about, you know, how that how we were going to address the challenges of really changing our local economy to keep a vibrant downtown for future generations. And, you know, it's that thing, once you start asking a lot of questions of people, they start saying, well, why don't you run for mayor? And I was like, well, I don't want to be the mayor. I just want someone else to fix the questions. And then I listened to that Barack Obama speech where he said, if you want to make a difference, you know, get a clipboard, get some signatures and run for office. And I seem to be the only crazy executive that took him up on it. And so I did. But listen, I I didn't really want to be the mayor just to be the mayor. I wanted to be the mayor because I had a very specific and clear vision for what I thought our town needed and was very excited about the possibility of fixing it. So I was really really ran on a platform about economic transformation for our town. And hence, I was elected. And that's when my first call started with Lord and Taylor. And that's what led me to the Richard Baker conversation. And and here we are today. 
Yeah, I think that's a key theme. One, I always say question everything. It's a great way to learn. But then I think we've seen at RCLCO as well that having private sector background with the public sector realm that we work with tends to lead to more efficiency, more success potentially. And obviously, you brought that private sector background to this public sector role. Can you share a bit about leveraging that, how revitalizing the historic core of Westfield and why this project became a priority as part of that and how that experience in the private sector really drove your work to do this? Yeah, that's a really good question. I will be honest with you. I think I was a little naive about what skills were transferable and what weren't. And I mean that, but for example, municipal finance is a completely different animal than the private sector. So I thought I knew how to run a big P&L, but when you get into municipal finance, it doesn't make sense. But what you do realize, I think the very transferable skills are the leadership aspects of what you've learned in the private sector. And I'd say, and quite honestly, coming even from a media background where HBO was all about storytelling. In this day and age in the public sector, I mean, really everything is about storytelling. So I would say the biggest transferable skills that brought me to this, because quite frankly, I mean, local real estate development and media, they don't really overlap. But there was a lot of similarities in how you go about it, leading projects and leading change and, and really leading teams of people. And I think those were the things that were most transferable. I mean, that's what I was accustomed to doing at HBO was leading disparate teams of people to accomplish very specific objectives. And that is really what was happened here. And I'd say the most important piece was also communication and being able to communicate externally and internally. This project would not have happened without the ability to do that. Yeah, and that was really on clear display from the get-go. I, I tell you, from my experience, as clear as I've ever seen it, that these large public-private partnerships have a private side that has to be run and a public side that has to be run. And it was clear from the beginning that the mayor had the leadership, but also the experience in running a large, complicated team full of experts on a complicated project really seamlessly and effectively. And it, it was so critical to getting this all to happen. And the other piece I would just add, too, is like my job at HBO was primarily negotiating our large distribution deals or the like, whether it be Comcast or Apple, right? So what was very important is whenever you try to achieve a solution is understanding where the other side is coming from, right? And put yourself in their shoes to be able to. And I think that's one thing that I was really able to do is they are in the business to make money. I mean, that's what the private sector does, right? It's not a crime. So we just need to figure out when you're working with taxpayer dollars and you've got a private entity, it's like, how do you come up with a way that you're really a huge advocate for maximizing the benefit to your taxpayers while also ensuring a reasonable return for your partner that actually makes it work for both of us. I would say that the mayor's skill as a negotiator was painful for me at times. <laughs> say it again, Doug, and then publish that <laughs> quote, would you? <laughs> That's what I want our taxpayers to hear. <laughs> More anecdotes. I want to hear the stories. This is great. And you both sort of touched on what I was going to be leading into for the next question, which was, it'd be great to hear from both of your sides sort of the differing perspectives of approaching a project from both the private sector viewpoint and then the public sector viewpoint? And most importantly, what sort of alignment of interests had to be brought to the forefront? Well, you know, let me give you a little backstory first, and then I'm going to ask Doug to chime in because I think it adds a little color to the conversation. So I told you I reached out early to Richard Baker, and it was really just to kind of get ahead of what their plans would be. And so I had met someone from his team early on and gave him that we were in the midst of a master plan, a community-driven master plan process. And we did this whole kind of high in the sky, what would Westfield like to see, right? 
And so this guy leaves and then I don't hear from him for several months, like four or five months. I'm like, did I dream that conversation? And then I get a call from Richard Baker's office that said, Richard Baker wants to meet with you. Now, keep in mind, I had never physically met with Richard at that time. I'd only been communicating through, you know, his team and so forth. So I went to New York and I met with Richard and his team. And he proceeds to show me, takes me into this room on this beautiful video display and proceeds to show me their plans for the seven acres of Lord, of the Lord and Taylor site. It was spectacular. It was so spectacular. I was worried that it was going to come at the expense of our historic downtown. It was going to be the shiny new object. And it was going to come at the expense of our current businesses. So while on one hand, I was telling Richard, wow, that's amazing. And just so thrilled at their willingness to invest so much in Westfield. But I was also saying, but uh, that's a bit of a problem for us. And so that was a bit of my takeaway when I left. And then once again, I don't hear from him for several months. And then I get a call and he says, well, we're talking to this company called Streetworks. And I'm like, okay. And so of course I'm Googling Streetworks to figure out who they were. And I don't hear from Richard for a while. Then he calls me back and says, we just decided to buy Streetworks. And I was like, of course you did. And the first conversation I had with the team of Streetworks was, they said to me, you know, that conversation you had with Richard, where he showed you that whole vision for the Lord Taylor property? I said, yes. He said, we told him to scrap it. Because if the entire town wasn't set up for success, it didn't make sense to invest that much money in their property. And that was the moment, I was like, oh my gosh, that was the moment I knew that we had an alignment of interests in that very first meeting. So with that, I'll hand it over to Doug, but that's a little bit of background of how we got there. That's like a, a flashback to six very tumultuous months of my life. <laughs> so, I'm sure. <laughs> very, very happy months, but coming in and being brought in and bought by Richard Baker, that was 2019. Incredibly exciting because there was an alignment of interests. And one of the hallmarks of Streetworks is we look, always start with a larger context and how does the property or the project fit into the larger and it became clear to us almost immediately exactly what the mayor said. In addition, the town had already embarked. A lot of time a town will try to design a project on their own, and that's really the private sector's job. What the town had done, which was very smart, is move forward with the master plan reexamination to say, fundamentally, what do we want our town to be? What do we want our downtown to be? And that was an incredible roadmap for us to see. I don't remember how many thousands of people participated in that, but to see what the town was looking for and then we could design something to meet it using our 40 years of experience. And that was the kickoff. I think the other side that happened on our side, because we looked at what we had, it was beautiful. It was great. But in the end of the day, it either would have hurt downtown and then not worked, which is not where any of us want to be. And I think the community outreach or, or input piece is such a key component of any successful public-private partnership. And, and maybe Talking about that in a little bit more detail, you all were in a bit of a unique situation as well. Most of the time, there has to be sort of a big public bidding process, but there was some uniqueness to the site, as you alluded to it with Richard and sort of the control of the existing seven acres, but how that fit into the larger historic downtown. Can you share a little bit about some of the components of the project, maybe the train depot, the gateways to the city you're now creating and why you ultimately were able to kind of, from the onset, create a partnership that worked versus having to do a big formal bidding process that that didn't necessarily maybe align with what the community was looking for? 
So Josh, why don't I tell you what we were trying to accomplish? And then I'm going to let Doug talk specifically about what they delivered to do that. And so first and foremost, it was all about the revitalization of our downtown. We had lost 2,000 jobs since 2015. And employees are the sustenance of our businesses beyond nights and weekends. And so our businesses were hurting because of that and definitely contributed to the vacancies. We also wanted to diversify our tax base. We are highly reliant on single-family residential taxpayers to pay for 93% of everything we got. So we don't have much of a commercial enterprise. So we are looking for an opportunity to diversify our tax base. We are also looking for it to increase our rateables so that we could actually deliver public improvements that we would never be able to afford on our own dime. And we are also looking to diversify our housing stock. And that is because we don't have any really housing for 55 and over. You find people when their kids graduate from high school, they have a for sale sign in their front yard because there's really no place to stay within the community. So those are, I would say, were the four big things that we wanted to accomplish. And that was all reflected in the master plan that Doug mentioned. And that is really kind of where we gave it to Doug and his team. And they came up with a lot of the specifics. So Doug, I'll let you talk to that. Yeah. So when we looked at all that, it really was clear that the town wanted these things, but wanted them mainly focused between North and South Avenues, which is right along the train line and adjacent to what is the historic downtown. So what it didn't need was a lot more retail. But because we were looking to do and we felt there was really a need for these alternative non-single family housing opportunities, class A office space that frankly didn't exist in town and was causing a real drain of businesses that leaving the town and the public realm connecting it all. We couldn't just do it on our site. It had to extend along. And because we owned such a big chunk, you couldn't do it without us. Um, So it made sense to combine and make forces. A lot of times if the town owns all the land, then it's a different process. But here we were far and away going to be the largest landowner involved. So that was sort of the the kickoff of the process and and how we immediately got into it. So we've talked a lot about positive vibes, the, the good alignment, but can we touch on some of the points of disagreement or where there's some differing views or more so the challenges that you two had to overcome to get the public and private sector on board, putting you on the spot a little bit, but any thoughts or things you can share there? Yeah, I think, of course, the disagreements often are always over money and the value that we put on things. I mean, there are many moments like that. I think there were also some big challenges over process and how we are going to go about the actual partnership. And my entire, Doug can, I'm sure, confirm this, my entire perspective was imagining how I can stand up and be able to justify this to the public flat out. I used to say in the private sector, you know, you'd try to get as much consensus as possible, but then you would keep moving forward and everybody jumps on board because that's what they're paid to do. In the public sector, you are always going to upset at least 20% of the people and they just jump on social media and tell everybody how awful you are. So you just know that you're going to get that blowback regardless of what you do. But my whole perspective was about standing up for the public. And I also want to know, it's really important to know that my council, we have really top-notch professionals that serve on our council. So it wasn't like it was just me. We have the head of our finance chair is a top finance executive. Another one is a litigator, is a securities litigator. So we had a really great team of even elected official professionals that were on the negotiating team with me on this. And it was typically over money and control. 
as you would say, right, right, Doug? Yeah, I would definitely. I can tell you, though, Josh, early on in the process, we were looking at a structure of how we would finance this privately and publicly and all those things. We've done it before, but it was pretty complicated. Not that people couldn't understand it. But the mayor, I remember the phone call, Mayor. You, you said, <laughs> I, I feel, I feel bad about that. <laughs> you're like, Doug, this is not working. We will never explain this clearly and simply where I can stand up and say, look, I support this. And she was right. And we pivoted basically over a, a long And you're week. being kind, by the way, in that conversation. <laughs> he left out really how it was stated. <laughs> Let's just say that there's the diplomatic mayor and then there's the mayor that is unhappy. <laughs> and she's not afraid. I haven't seen that know. version of her yet from all of our calls. So that's not. And we're, but we're still, we're, we're still speaking, right? We're still speaking. Yes. So we pivoted and that's part of us. We are very committed to our principles, but not to the exclusion of success and collective success. So we pivoted. It didn't change the project, but it changed some of the underlying fundamental structures that allowed us to move forward. And I completely agree with the mayor. We've been at this a long time in a lot of communities throughout North America. You're never going to get everyone. It's the price of progress. If the majority is not, then you're not going to move forward. But we undertake and how we approach it is the private sides, I think, corollary to the mayor. We strive to be transparent and fully engaged in the community. So just a couple of examples. We built a preview center in a storefront downtown that's fitted out with a full model, a space for the community to meet. And we have now had 8,200 interactions with individuals through that preview center since we started. So it's sort of that relentless grassroots approach. I mean, 2,500 individuals have actually been through the center, and that's a town of, you know, that's a, a meaningful percentage in addition to all the people that participated in the master plan re-examination. So we really want to make sure that everyone's had an opportunity to weigh in. We, again, stay committed to our principles, but we honor the input of the community that knows their community best. That makes sense. And again, common themes, right? Communication, community engagement. I know that played a big piece of the adaptive reuse and conversion strategy discussion and maybe pivoting, but staying on a similar topic. We talked about challenges just now with the process, but Doug, the adaptive reuse and rehab of a large department building, the Lord and Taylor building, that was a big piece of the project. We read a lot about challenges that you have to overcome with old repurposing of buildings. Can you speak through that a little bit and what that was like in terms of how you integrated what was a sentimental piece of, of the landscape of the city into the project? Sure. And this is an issue we have throughout our portfolio of Lord & Taylor properties. Converting old office to new office, really hard. Luckily, we don't own much of any of the old office. But these retail buildings, which were very sentimental, but they were also incredibly well located in the town. They were often the first in the town. They're also high ceilings, the right size floor plate, and typically two, maybe three stories tall. So you're talking 17 to 19 foot ceilings. When you, By the time you put windows in them, they are perfect for medical uses, for hospital uses, for professional offices, law firms. And we've seen time and time again now in Stamford, Connecticut, in Garden City, New York, Manhasset, New York, where the conversions really bring new life and new energy to the areas where they are. And sometimes it's retail as well. So the buildings are really well suited to these conversions. And at the end of the day, a lot of the guts 
get replaced, right? All new HVAC, there's new structural requirements that these new tenants have and how they want the, the public spaces and the outdoor spaces. But you want to keep the bones and the feeling so that when people go by, they go, yeah, that was, you know, Lord and Taylor. I remember shopping there as a kid. I worked there, right? I mean, Typically, a Lord and Taylor had 200 to 220 people working in it over the course of the week. So it's really, for many Main Streets, the heart of Main Street when it first started. I think a big piece of your project, and we spoke about this when we prepped, is that, as you just shared, it's easier to do obsolete department stores into new office versus old office to new office. But the office sector is probably the conversation I wanted to get to next for a minute, because Obviously, you read the headlines, you look at the media and whatnot, and office has its struggles right now. Yet, I know both you and the mayor were very bullish on office. And, Mayor, you spoke to some of the key pieces being sort of the job creation. Can you both talk about why you like office so much for this project? Why you thought that was a very important piece of making this all work and sort of your perspectives from both sides? Well, it's funny, you know, pre COVID, when these conversations were in their infancy, office space was something that was really important to us for the reasons that you just mentioned. And it's funny, I think it's only COVID and the trends afterwards and what's happening in suburban communities has only reinforced, I think, our support for the type of class A, highly amenitized office space that we're talking about beyond the adaptive reuse of the Lord & Taylor, but these mass timber buildings that are going to be on our flat surface parking lot. So we are very bullish. I think, yes, when you read the traditional suburban office park out in the middle of the woods somewhere, those are definitely becoming obsolete. But I have to say, I do dare to say that I think Westfield's gain in the office space is going to come at the expense of many of these other obsolete parks because from what I understand, we're finding folks that want to downsize from their million, their million square feet to 200,000 square feet next to a train station in a beautiful downtown. And that's exactly what we're providing. Yeah, absolutely. And we intentionally have two different types of office space in this project. The adaptive reuse is just really well suited to medical and medical related tenants. And those tenants, that's the number one fastest growing segment of the leasing market today. And we don't expect there to be a retrenchment in the medical world anytime soon. For the Class A office space, which we spent some time on where it should be and ended up putting it where you would think, right at the train station, is key because companies today, and New Jersey has just a lot of great companies in the life sciences, the medical, the drugs, et cetera, that want to stay here. They love it here. Their workforce is here, but they're sitting on a million square feet of obsolete space that because of COVID and all the other changes, it just accelerated the trends where they don't need that. They need smaller space and their employees to attract the talent they want. The employees want to be in a downtown where they can walk around at lunch. They can either live there or they can get there easily. So you need to be in a place with multiple modes of transportation. If they want to ride their bike from someplace nearby, that's how you're going to get people to come work for you. And you're seeing definitely those companies leave their old obsolete office. And rent is secondary. The the searches for the companies now are run by the human resource departments, facilitated by the real estate group, not the other way around. And I think that obviously the office then is key to sort of the success of the project and the job creation piece key to the success of the city. Mayor, can you talk a little bit about the economic model of the project and what the benefits are to the city and how you define those goals and what that looks like and feels like to be successful from your perspective? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's probably the public realm of this project and the public improvements are prob- are the things that we're actually most excited about. And when you asked earlier about the bid and being able to, or not bidding out and being able to work with our property owner, honestly, being able, they're bringing seven and a half acres of their property to the table and we're bringing seven and a half acres of our property to the table. And you can look at them collectively and that's what enables you to maximize the public benefits to the community. So what was really important to us was a lot of the public spaces and infrastructure improvements. And really we started at a place, and I think I mentioned this to you when we spoke earlier, is what kind of community do we want to be? We want to be a walkable green community that is really, we think, a model for what a post-COVID downtown could be for the country. And that includes public squares and a lot of open spaces. And for us, it's delivering $54 million in public improvements. That includes not only the open spaces and so forth, but also improvements to 10 traffic intersections and two public garages that we can like rejigger where we park our cars. And I just think the point of view that we started, and I mentioned this to you, is when a planner said, if you build for cars, you get cars. If you build for people, you get people. We are building a downtown for people that accommodates cars versus the other way around, which is how a lot of downtowns have been built since the automobile. Yeah, we completely agree with that philosophy that if we have to accommodate the people. Cars are reality. You have to be able to park and accommodate them, but they cannot dominate. If you create it, that's what you'll get. That is not the way forward. And I think the, the mayor and the town made the right choice on how they approached this. Yeah, our town of 31,000 people, the majority of them live within a mile of the train station. So we should be able to accommodate great bike and pedestrian infrastructure. The planning community component of our audience will will appreciate hearing that. So um, that's great. You also mentioned the word green. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to maybe speak a little bit about some of the ESG impact that the project is going to have as well. I know you shared some great stats with me, Mayor. Maybe you can speak to that as well. Well, I think it's one thing, you know, we have to continually remind our community who, of course, there's concerns about are we overbuilding, et cetera, but every single thing we're building is on currently on a flat surface parking lot. Asphalt parking lots are not known to be associated with green infrastructure. So between the mass timber buildings and everything else, we're actually going to be improving stormwater management by 30% and reducing the heat island effect by 50%. And I'll let Doug talk to some of the specifics, but we're really excited about the ESG component of this project. Yeah. You know, our company also owns Hudson Bay Company in Canada. We're exposed to a lot there and in the Pacific Northwest. And we see mass timber buildings as a big part of the future, not 100%, but a growing part. And they're incredible buildings, very sustainable. And those are what we're planning for the Class A office. They're unique and they are part of creating that brand of the office, which is what the tenants really want. The buildings have to sync with what their company stands for. And ESG is important for the companies, the tenants, and it's important for us, both for the real estate and our company overall. Putting in all these new systems, but other things that people don't know, organizing the parking in a way where you're moving from these flat surface, it has the benefits the mayor said, but also it allows us to put multimodal centers in where we can have bike and walking trails that come there as well. And people can readily use not just the things we know about, but create flexible spaces to accommodate. It's a highly evolving area in five, 10, 15 years. So as new ways to get to work and get around happen, they can be accommodated. And every building will be built to at least lead lead silver certification. So that was really important to us too. Absolutely. 
We touched on a lot of the kind of details, the tactical elements of the project and, and why it's been successful. What would you say, maybe big picture though, how can One Westfield Place be more of a, be a model for other cities and municipalities? What can they do to follow in your footsteps to, to kind of drive the same type of redevelopment and buy-in from both sides? From the private side, it's about, I think one of the key things is knowing the roles and maximizing the roles. So the, the private developer says, you know, I'm responsible for saying, here's what the market wants and here's... I understand what the town wants and here's how we can deliver it, whereas the town and the mayor will certainly be able to tell more clearly what what the town is. But one of the key things is putting forward very clearly, here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here are our goals, because then we can work together. And one of the key things on these big projects is that often it requires offsites and these public improvements and things that are too expensive for the developer to just simply pay for. And they're too expensive for the town just to bond and pay for. But together, and particularly in New Jersey, using the really effective pilot program, the project can generate the revenues that the town, in this case with a great AAA credit rating, can bond to create the public improvements that really make the, the project special. And I think that was really important too, the redevelopment aspect of this, where we're not playing funny money with taxpayer dollars. All the revenue from this project is funding all the improvements. So there's no bonds that are being required by the taxpayer. It's all redevelopment agreement bonds, which was really important. And then just to answer your question, Josh, about how others could do this, I mean, first of all, we are very fortunate to have a trusted partner from the get-go. Hudson's Bay has been in Westfield since the early 90s. They're our largest employer and downtown taxpayers. So having that history is really helpful. They're also committed to the long term, not let's just do this and turn around and flip it. And I think that's where a lot of developers, quite frankly, get the rap, certainly at the public side, is that they're just here to make their money and run. We knew we had a vested partner. And because that they were a property owner, they were also equally vested in the outcome. And that was really, really important for us to have that trust, not only with the elected officials, but also be able to communicate that with the public. Yeah, more on the blocking and tackling side. I think when a town, which Westfield did, hires really qualified experts to advise them, it's hugely helpful. We don't look at it as a threat. We look at it as, wow, this is great. They're properly advised. We can really have the conversations that we need to have to work it out because there's a million details to be worked out. In addition, we set up a cadence, and we always try to do this at the highest levels, the mayor involved and anyone else she felt appropriate for regular scheduled discussions that weren't issue or matter delivered. There were always issues discussed, but it was just became a repeating thing. And that's how the trust and the dialogue builds over, I think they were years, right? Four years of doing this. So it was an investment of time on both sides that you don't always get, but pays huge dividends. And I'll just say, I don't really have any experience in real estate. So this was really my first venture, but I do have experience in negotiating. But I think what was really important, which I understand is highly unusual, the Streetworks brought to the table is, from what I gather, a lot of developers are afraid to talk to the public. When you tell them that you're going to show these things to the public, they recoil like, oh, no, don't do that. And I think that's where Streetworks is highly unusual in their not only willingness, but most requirement to actually get the public involved. And I would just say to any of your listeners who are developers, don't be afraid of the public input. It only helps you get people vested in the success of the project and ultimately help you with approvals. 
yeah, communication, we've... engagement, transparency. Again, some key themes, things that we've heard throughout this conversation. Just to catch our audience up, where are things currently? What are the next steps? Where's the project sit today? We successfully completed a critical piece, which was full approval and negotiation and execution of the redevelopment agreement, the redevelopment plan, which outlines all of the massing and the uses and the organization of the site, and all of the related financial documents that go along with it. So now we turn our attention to, okay, we have, have the plan that went through that process. Let's now take it into the next step of making it a reality. So we're in the process of preparing our site plan approval application, which we'll make early next year, which is really the key step before getting in the ground, which we plan on doing at the end of next year. Great. We obviously wish you continued luck. I know these are long processes. This has been an extremely informative discussion from my end in terms of the takeaways and how you can approach public-private partnerships successfully. Maybe in terms of last words, key takeaways, what would you want to leave our audience with in terms of lessons learned or your kind of direction, if you could give any guidance going forward? I'll go first so the mayor can get the actual last word. But Because you know I like that, Doug. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> True negotiator right there, right? <laughs> yeah. You have to be really patient and really focused and in it for the long haul. I will say that for, for major projects, my average is about seven years per project. So you got to be love this work and be in it. But know your principles, know what you're trying to do at your core, because things change, markets change, towns are different, cities are different. But if you have your core principles, which for us is we want to create great places people love, right? So we go forward, that takes the shape then of what Westfield's vision for that is, and we can bring it forward that way. And that's what we think makes us here at Streetworks successful. And I would just say you pretty much touched on, I think, the key factors. And the big discovery and revelation for me is what makes a project successful in the public sector is really no different than what makes a project successful in the private sector. And that is about surround yourself with the best possible people and the smartest people and then empower them to do their jobs. Have a clarity of vision, right, so that everybody knows what they're working towards. And very importantly, I would say the one thing that's even more important is the communication aspect because one, two, three, four, five, it's never enough, never enough. You cannot communicate enough in order to get people vested in the success and supportive of the eventual outcome. Yeah, definitely. The incredible team behind the mayor and the team here that is responsible for 100% of my success are just critical to everything. Well, now I'm just seeing the alignment even even on the call here and even in your final takeaways, right? So it's clearly a match made in heaven. And, and I want to thank you both, Doug and, and Mayor Brindell. You truly are some of the best minds in real estate. Mayor, especially you, even if you don't consider yourself in real estate, but glad that we have you in our industry. Glad you can set the model for others to follow. And I hope our audience had a chance to learn something here and take something away. Of course, if they can reach out to either of you, I know we'll make yourselves available and, and really just appreciate your time here today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us, Josh. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCL Co. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.